So today I thought I would open up with, uh, you know, talk of a Episcopalian like myself, Dr. William Culbertson, uh, president of the Moody Bible Institute a while back. Naturally, as an Episcopalian, he enjoys a joke at the expense of his Baptist friends. Um, I, I join him in that usually. And he tells this story about these three rather notorious characters who have been converted and were to be baptized by immersion at the local Baptist church. Everybody turned out for it. Now, the church only had one small dressing room which opened up from the baptistry, which is the pool which the people would be immersed in in front of the church. And the dressing room was shielded from view by, you know, a sheet hung over the entrance. The floor of that room was covered with linoleum. On that not-to-be-forgotten night, the first character had been baptized, had gone up behind the sheet to change his clothes. The second man was then baptized and joined his companion in the dressing room. Now, <clears throat> that second man was having trouble wriggling out of his wet trousers. He extricated one leg and gave a kick to free the other leg, and unfortunately his foot skidded on the wet linoleum floor. Back down into the baptistry he went, right on top of the preacher and the third candidate. And as he went, he gra desperately grabbed the sheet, shielding the dressing area, and, well, that was carried away with him to the pool. Now, meanwhile, the first man had removed all those wet clothes, and when the sheet disappeared into the water, kind of left him standing before the congregation in his birthday suit. He grabbed the chair and tried to hide behind it. The lights had been turned on low for the baptism, and uh, somebody yelled, Turn off the lights! An excited deacon did exactly the opposite. In, in his surprise, he actually turned them on the full power. Now, that was a service to be remembered. Kind of wonder if John the Baptist had a memorial, mem memorable baptisms. I mean, he had one, and that was, that, that was Jesus. See, John the Baptist is a very colorful individual. He dressed weird, ate weird things. His preaching was very colorful as well. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Yeah, that's what he told the Pharisees and Sadducees who were in the audience. It's Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, if you want to look. He definitely was not diplomatic with his preaching. I, I feel that. I mean, it takes real guts to swear during your service, right? And uh, it definitely takes some guts calling the members of your congregation vipers and snakes. But John had an enormous impact on that community. Crowds from Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to the wilderness to hear this guy talk. And they confessed their sins. Many of them were baptized by John in the Jordan. And you might pay attention. Jesus held John in the greatest respect. On one occasion, he said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, I think one reason that John really had such an impact on people was probably his humility. He was not ever on an ego trip. He was very genuine. He was real. He wasn't interested in pushing his own agenda or 
filling up the lines and in fact he tells a message through Mark that it was not about himself at all but the coming Messiah. According to John, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was never looking for anyone to follow him. He was looking for people to follow Jesus. He was a man of conviction and a man of humility. Maybe that's why Jesus came to John to be baptized in the first place. See, think about that. John baptized the very Son of God. He baptized the one for whom he had been preparing the people's hearts. That's one hell of a moment to, you know, to end a night life on, isn't it? He just sat there. And even his humility shows through when John tried to turn Jesus away. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus did need to be baptized, not because of his sin, but to be an example. See, baptism is a very powerful symbol for a Christian. It's more powerful than any church member I've met is even aware. See, if anything, in our very open tradition, in our very open ways, baptism is the one closed sacrament. That is our closed practice, baptism. See, communion and Eucharist, I believe, is the most honest introductory sacrament. Everyone should be invited to the table. Everyone should be invited to the meal. Whether you believe or not, it is that which welcomes people into the faith. But here, in baptism, we give ourselves to God. An Old Testament scholar and author, uh, Walter Brueggemann, he, he was influencing on how many Christians are thinking about baptism today. Now, it's not a theology class, and I don't want your eyes to glaze over. Even though usually my theology classes are eye-opening to a lot of people, we're, that's not what we're aiming for here. Brueggemann's thoughts, though, were so powerful, I think we should at least have a taste of what he's saying to the church. See, Brueggemann proposes nine theses, which I'm not going to list all of them. I want to list the first few. And I think they're well worth understanding. And maybe one day I'll go through more of them. But for today, just a couple. Because Brueggemann starts by saying everybody has a script. I just forgot mine when I was born, but that's beside the point. Let's think about it, though. You and I have a script that we live by. And think of it 
from which an actor reads. Each of us, says Brueggemann, has a script in his or her brain, and we live our lives through consciously or unconsciously guided by that script. Most of us unconscious if you have ADHD or autism, but you know what? That's okay. We just can't read the script. It's not in our language. We still got it, though. We're good. The script, it's a product of a lifetime of influences. Part of the script comes from the rituals in which our families engage. For some of us, it may be as simple as, My daddy always said... <laughs> you know, uh, writer uh, James P. Lefensty talks about an 11-year-old boy fishing one night with his dad. And suddenly the boy's pole doubles over and he knew something huge was on the other end. With a lot of effort, he reeled it in. It was the largest bass he had ever seen. His father watched proudly, then looked at his watch. It was 10 p.m., two hours before the bass season opened. You're not going to have to put it back, son, he said. And the boy couldn't believe what his father was saying. Nobody was around. Nobody would know. Why should he throw it back in? Now, that was a long time ago. And today, that boy is a successful architect in New York City. And he still lives by the ethic his father taught him that night. That's part of his script. The part of the script that comes from our family. And part of our script comes from our surrounding culture, especially television, advertising. As an average American, you're bombarded by up to 3,000 ads a day. A lot of the ads can be just as vapid as... You only go around once in life. Or, because I'm worth it. Or, just do it. With enough repetition, these messages become part of us. Central to our cultural script, says Brueggemann, is the assumption that happiness comes in a bottle, or in a product, or service. I think it's a breakfast baconator. But, you know, uh... According to this script, though, there is a product or a treatment or a process to counteract any ache and pain, discomfort, trouble, so life can be lived without inconvenience. As my mom would say, better living through chemistry. But here's the problem. That script has failed. It promised to make us safe, happy, fulfilled, yet, in truth, it has rather produced new depths of insecurity. Food insecurity, uh, money insecurity, where is rent going to come from? Why can't I make enough to consume enough, to be enough? <clears throat> but the truth is, every survey tells us that we are wealthier than we've ever been. The houses are bigger. Supposedly, there's more discretionary income. I don't think they're talking to the most of the rest of us. But we live better than any previous generation, supposedly. But we've never been unhappier, more certain about our future. That's the truth. See, the previous generations to mine kind of set us up to fail. <clears throat> If you really think about it, I mean, I make as much today, busting my butt, you know, 50 hours a week, than my, as my gramps did when he was going through seminary. 
And there's no possible way that I could afford a seminary without like some serious magic because the price has gone up 10 to 50 times what it was when my grandfather went to school. So the script failed. You know, you work hard, you're supposed to get something out of it. No one gets anything out of it these days. Nothing that really matters. John Killinger, uh, he's a doctor. He talks about a cartoon where he sees a family setting up camp in the woods. They brought their TV set, camera phones, video games, and a box full of other electronic devices. Oh, it's a good thing we've got this stuff, one of the kids is saying. Or we couldn't shut out the noise of that stream and the waterfall. Now, I'm not playing technology. Lord knows I am a techno fiend. I got all the tech stuff. But you know what's in the back of my trunk? Fly rods, waders, boots, nets. I try to go fishing at least once a week. Even in this blizzard, I'm thinking, huh, you know what? The Milwaukee's going to be wonderful. Kind of weird thing to think about, isn't it? As I'm sitting in my car, watching the snow pile higher and higher on my windshield. So there's something wrong. Something wrong's gone in our society, though. Technology makes us happier, though, right? We're only one new gadget away from Nirvana. Meanwhile, families are in shambles. Sales of antidepressants are soaring, probably because we understand that all of us are fucking depressed. More and more people are discovering that we have more and more emotional disorders. The script, as we thought it was, has failed. And the sooner we are aware of this and fight back, the better off we'll be. Because something terribly wrong has gone off script and it has made our society, the inside of it, kind of rotten. Which, of course, brings us to the next thesis. Our physical, mental, moral, and spiritual health depends on disengaging from and relinquishing the failed script. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? If the script has failed us, then we need to put that failed element down and write a new one. Sadly, that is a lot easier said than done. How do we undo a lifetime of programming from our family, society, and the myriad of influences that have been brought to bear down upon us? How do you look at your dad who's saying... You need to hit the streets and find that job when nobody gives out applications anymore. How do you tell the lady that, hey, sure, you can take the kids to the library, but there's 18 inches of snow outside. You can get the app called Libby and read to them there. How do we disengage from what has broken in society, this hyper-individualism, and find something better. 
Now, Brueggemann says the task of the church and its ministry is to detach us from that script. And I think he's right. I think, honestly, he is right. But I also think that the church, at least the church that the news feeds us, is part of the problem. It's hyper-individualized. Because if it's about society, then that Christianity knows it's failed. And I kind of feel like that's my job is to disconnect people from that hyper-individualistic, toxic theology and remind them it's about you and me together. It's about all of us together, working together to make everything better. I'm not kind of... Although I hope it's entertaining, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm definitely not going to reinforce prejudice that you've already been told. The Bible hates gays. Fuck that shit. But I want to give you an alternative script that's actually rooted in the real Bible. The real words of Christ. And let those be enacted through the new traditions of a real church. A real community of faith, love, and companionship. My family was in church while an infant baptism was taking place one time. And they sat in the very front row so that the kids with them could properly witness the service. There's a six-year-old girl. And she was focused so intensely on the scene of the pastor, the rector, pouring water over the little kid's head with a puzzled look on her face. And she turned to her father and asked, Daddy... Why is he brainwashing the little baby? Good question, kid. See, baptism isn't about brainwashing. It isn't opening up to say, this is what this means. This is what that means. Everything has to be just this way. I had an argument with a guy about this. He was in the vehicle and I said that The holy texts are negotiated. All of us negotiate them because they were all written in an encapsulated time, place, and thought. They had their own reasons for every single person who wrote words in the Bible had their own individual reasons why they were writing and how they were writing it. Because it was inspired by God. But it wasn't written by God's own hand. The Creator gave the feelings, the inspiration to mortal men. And I hate to break it to you, men are far from perfect. If you come to church simply to be reinforced what you already know, why? How does that profit you in any way? According to Brueggemann, my job, my calling, is to point out to you that you and I have already been brainwashed in such a way that we may have missed God's purpose in our lives. My job ain't to call you a snake or a viper. I mean, I'll call you on your bullshit. Don't don't get me wrong. But when I call you out on your bullshit, 
is to suggest that maybe you and I have been living our lives according to a failed script that's rooted in that bullshit. Honestly, I'd much rather entertain you, and I hope it always does. I'd rather enforce your present way of thinking if that actually worked, but it doesn't. It's broken. It's not fixable if we keep doing the same shit. So instead, I'm going to tell you to look at what happened to Jesus when he sought to change the script for the world in which he lived. He was arrested. He was tortured. And they fucking crucified his ass. I doubt that's going to happen to me. I'm too fat. But pray for me that I won't give in to the temptation of taking that safe, easy way just for more listens or views or to try and make this podcast something that I never wanted it to be. That eternal lie that so many evangelical prophet churches go for. I don't even have a better way of calling it. They give people what they want and not what they need and deserve. And it hurts people. Just pray for me that I'll not give in to the temptation of taking it the safe way. That I'm going to take a look at that scripture faithfully and interpret it. And speak the word that God means for me to speak. Because we lived by a script. We all do. It's a script and product of the lives of influence. Positive, negative, happenstance, or by design. The script which promised us happiness and fulfillment has failed us. The role of the church and its ministry to disengage us from that so that we make society better has failed us so far. So the final thesis I'm going to throw at you today is an entry point, according to Brueggemann. An entry point into this counter script for our lives is in that closed practice of baptism. Baptism is sign and seal that we want a new script. We want a script written by Jesus, our teacher. Bergman says that it's a bold counteract. In baptism, we claim a new set of values and rules because that's what's so important. That's why I think we need to start confirming ourselves again and maybe rebaptize ourselves as part of that confirmation. Because the purpose of the baptism is to set us free from the script that's failed. To take a new script in hand that offers so many wonderful possibilities for not just ourselves, but for the societies that we live in. Commenting on these new possibilities of baptisms, 
that baptism gives us. A priest who I consider a mentor once said, if someone tempts you, why don't you stay the night? You can say, oh, I couldn't. Well, why not? They wonder. Baptized, you say. Oh. It's never really made any sense because honestly, God doesn't hate sex. But you know, old people. Even within the church, though, some of us have a tendency to be dismissive of people who are a little slower, maybe a little bit more needy, or a little bit more obnoxious than we'd like them to be. So we have a tendency to create in-crowds and out-crowds, those who get care and attention, and those allowed to slip slowly out of the circle. We have a tendency to do these things, but of course we won't, and why not? Because we're baptized. That's what baptism is, as it was meant to be. A lot of us need to ask the question whether our baptism means anything in our lives. Because it should be a powerful force in making the choices, both large and small. It should be a powerful force in reminding us who we are and to whom we belong. He said when Martin Luther was despairing and seemed to be overwhelmed by all the challenges he faced, I mean, the fucker was excommunicated like four times, he'd write with his finger in Latin in the dust on the table. Baptizetus sum. Or, I have been baptized. I wonder if that makes sense to a lot of people today. That the radical understanding of what it means to be baptized is radical. And that's the point. Baptism ought to separate us from our old life. It ought to separate us from the decay in our society. An Anglican priest named Catherine, because I hate to point this out to you, Women can be ordained to be priests and deacons and everything else because that script was old and it was broken. So Catherine tells of baptizing this toddler named Dylan. And Dylan's mom had multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair. And that was a situation that Dylan knew exactly how to exploit whenever he felt the need. No surprise that during his baptism service, he raced around the church playing hide-and-seek behind the large pillars and generally made things as hard as possible for the priests until, that is, they came to the water. Because Dylan loved his bath. So when the priest began to pour water into the font, he was all at attention. When she poured the first polite trickle over his head, he began to suspect she didn't really have the right idea, so he splashed. He splashed a little, and the priest got wet. Splashed her more, and she got wetter. By the time he'd finished, mother, dad, godparents, and all those standing around the font were absolutely drenched and dripping. His poor mother was mortified, but 
The priest changed into dry clothes at home afterwards. And she realized, in fact, that Dylan was the only one there who had the right idea. Because if the waters of baptism represent God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, then that is in no way a restrained, polite Anglican dribble. Rather, it's a torrent. A fire hose, if you will. Something so overwhelming and flood every corner and sweep us off our feet, change the whole landscape forever. So can you get your mind around this understanding of baptism? It could be revolutionary. Because we live by a script that's failed us, and the gospel gives us a counterscript to live by. Baptism, the baptism is a sign that we have been adopted by that new script in our lives. Baptism tells us who we are. We are Christ's forever. Because, just like Christ... We are baptized. That's all I got for today. And hey, listen, if you're listening to this to the end and you actually hear this part, consider supporting us. Because honestly, it's hard. Each one of these podcasts that I do, except for the ones that are in the car like today, usually take a while, at least a couple of hours, three, four hours, and I really don't have three or four hours of my day to give up like this. I want to do more. But to do more, I need your support and help. So, all my links are down below. Buy me a coffee. Subscribe on Spotify. Do all the things. Like, comment, share. Because Jesus fucking Christ, people. It's time for us to find that new script, don't you think? Anyway, you're going to hear from me soon. A lot sooner and later because, hey, we got Epiphany, right? So I, 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 I need to get out of that shit. Anyway, mwah, peace and out. There are Jews in the world. There are Buddhists. There are Hindus and Mormons and then There are those that follow Mohammed's But I've never been one of them Fie Jesu Domine Dona eis requiem Oh Lord, oh you are so big so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. <laughs>